Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and with me on the other end of the line is my mother and co-host, Caroline Kilborn. And hello, everyone. The sun is shining. <laughs> Good yeah, day. so we might we might get above freezing. <laughs> yeah, you think? <laughs> but it's January in Iowa. I just returned yeah, from right. from Mexico City, where I was, you know, eating outdoors and walking around, and but. <clears throat> um, but it's beautiful here in the wintertime, in a way. <laughs> in a way, yeah. Well, you know what they say in Iowa, if you don't like the weather, just wait 10 minutes, it'll change. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so speaking of change, the, uh, <laughs> the change. book that we are uh, going to be discussing today is about some major life changes. Oh, my goodness, yes. Caroline, would you and like to introduce our author? I would. The book is The Sisters We Were, and it is a fantastic book. It really is. And the author um, is Wendy Willis Baldwin. It is her debut novel, and together she and her sister host the Life After Fat Pants podcast, which I'm sure is very interesting. A native of Texas, she now lives on a farm in New Hampshire with her husband, her dogs, and thousands of honeybees. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds interesting. Well, this book, like I say, this is a fantastic book. And once you start reading it, you you got to give yourself time to read it because you don't want to put it down. Oh, well, welcome to, welcome to Writer's Voices, Wendy. So, thank you, Caroline. Thanks, Monica. You guys are too kind, and I I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Now, this is your your debut novel, and is it the first novel that you've written? I always like to ask no, that. <laughs> um, no, and I know, and writers, you know, <laughs> like there's no such thing as overnight success, right? Like um, we all claw away and craft and retool, and and that's definitely. I mean, I'm, I, uh, I definitely have earned my rejection letters, every one of them. Um, <laughs> I, I would say, you know, my my early background was broadcasting, and I've done sales, and I, you know, my professional career you know, at 53, I can look back and go, wow, I've done quite a lot of stuff. But overall, I've always done storytelling in some way, shape or form. So I did magazines and um, documentary film production when I was in TV. And, um, and over the past 10 or so years, I've had the privilege to be able to just sit and focus on my craft, which is long form writing um, novels. And so I've actually written two other novels, and, and this was the third complete manuscript I finished. And the first one I've, uh, my agent managed to sell. So what kept you going to get to the third one when the first <sighs> two you were not able to sell? You know, I think, I mean, I, I've told people before that, you know, at some level, once you invest amount of, I mean, writing is something I do. It's that, it's that, um, um, ikigai or, or um, I, I forget the Japanese word. Um, I'm maybe mispronouncing it, but it's it's my passion. Um, and and it's one of those things, not unlike painting or playing in my um, apiary or something, where I can lose all track of time. And I just I find that I I I love it. I love getting lost in a story. And I feel what's funny is like, even if I haven't had any um, measurable success as defined by the outside world or, you know, anything like that, every day I've ever spent writing, I have felt unbelievably productive at the end of it. Like I'm, I I feel like, Oh, look what I built, look what I created. And 
fortunately, I've had a very um, patient and encouraging husband who enjoys hearing like whatever words I've strung together at the end of his busy day. Um, and so he's always been my first and greatest critic. But um, yeah, I think once you invest a certain amount of time in a story, you feel like quitting would be like quitting on yourself or something. Absolutely. Absolutely. So tell us sort of the background of the sisters we were and what inspired you to write this novel. Yeah. Well, um, the sisters we were, of course, is a story about sisterhood. And um, I'd say an overarching theme is just all about how our most intimate relationships expand and contract pretty much in direct relationship to all the secrets we keep, right? I mean, intimacy um, or lack thereof is, is a wall and, um, or it can be a wall. And in my own life, my, my sister and I, um, we grew up in the same house. Um, we were exposed to um, very similar childhood traumas, not in our, our um, nuclear home, but um, with other relatives, um, specifically child sexual abuse and, and things like that. There were, um, you know, things we didn't really know how to grapple with as young girls and kept secret as we were growing up. And ultimately, the way that kind of trauma manifested in my life was one way. Um, and the way it manifested for my sister in her life was a completely different way. And and for me, I was sort of drawn to writing, even at an early age, storytelling and um, doing stuff as a way of probably cathartic, you know, just processing, right? Journal writing is processing whatever was, is going on. My sister, um, her coping strategy um, it was a food addiction uh, that ultimately, you know, started out as seemingly, you know, not too terribly um, unhealthy. I mean, like, you know, it was something that nobody really noticed that much as, as she was growing up. But but as, um, you know, life uh, went along, her food addiction really spiraled to a level that um, became increasingly hard to manage. And at her heaviest, um, at the age of 40, my sister was weighing 531 pounds and was very near um, the point of, you know, not even being able to walk across a room. Um, certainly not being able to walk upstairs. I mean, there were just so many things um, that um, were limited in her life because of, of her size and her health. And um, anyway, we she decided um, after uh, 40 years that it was time to save herself. And um, watching her go through that process where she lost 349 pounds over the course of 18 months was nothing short of miraculous. It was super astonishing and as her first friend closest confidant um you know all of that i mean it was really something to watch her go from um um you know her previous life to just really taking off i mean letting go of the weight letting go of things and and she likes to tell people that she got smaller her life got bigger um and i watched that happen with her in so many ways you know i mean she just had access to things and and um, experiences that she could enjoy that she'd never been able to enjoy. And we, she and I had been on um, an, um, a period of estrangement um, and we had reconciled and come back together. And it was at a point when we were walking, she came to visit me when I was living in Virginia and we were walking along Goose Creek on a road called Crenshaw. And it was the first time 
in our adult lives as sisters that we had been able to walk side by side and keep pace with one another. And I was telling her I was interested in doing a story with um, a protagonist um, who weighed 531 pounds because I just think there aren't enough stories told about people um, coming from that vantage point, from that life experience. And mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. we thought it would be very appropriate to name the sisters Crenshaw because <laughs> they were keeping pace with each other, even though in the beginning of the book, it doesn't look like they are at all. Um, and yeah, and so she loved it and loved the idea and um, and was quite frankly, very helpful um, to me throughout. The book is dedicated to her, as you guys know. And in terms of what was real and what wasn't, I have lots of folks ask me about that. Of course, of course. Yeah, but the the truth is the the primary um, nugget that that was real is just this timeline for specific weight loss. Um, Because my sister had gone through that exact timeline, 531 pounds and losing 349 of those pounds over a period of 18 months um, with the help of her bariatric procedure that she chose to have, I chose to use that as sort of the scaffolding um, and the exact chronology for this particular protagonist. But um, just putting it out there, our dearly departed mom uh, was never in prison. I just want people to know. (laughs) Okay. She was an English teacher. She would have been really happy to be here right now for this book launch. But anyway. And were you ever as kind of mean to your sister as Ruby was to Pearl? Um, I definitely was as mean to my sister, um, shamefully, not, no, 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 not (laughs) in the level of throwing. I never used projectiles. I never, um, (laughs) I never threw things. And I also have, um, I, I also have never thrown, um, dog poo at anyone. Um, although, uh, although my brother would tell people, Hey, I wouldn't put it past her, which is (laughs) his way of joking. Well, the guy that the, the the victim of that particular incident kind of deserved it. (laughs) Didn't he? I don't know. I don't know if he deserved it, but yeah, it it was, um, it's a funny moment. If, um, there were, there are a lot of little vignettes in this, um, novel that are like, um, Hmm, you have to pause and ask yourself, would would I do that? Yeah. <laughs> Am I capable of that? Yeah. Yeah. You you asked the question, was I as, ever as mean? Yeah. I think, um, I mean, uh, I was as hard on my sister at times as Ruby is in the novel. It, it, definitely. Um, I'm, I'm sad to admit that, but it's, it's true. I mean, I was, I was the person who was like, oh my gosh, you know, Tiff, get it together. If you would just eat less and exercise, you'll, you'll, you know, see results. And, and I mean, it was said in love much the way that Ruby, you know, I, my intentions were good. It's like, I loved my baby sister. I, I wanted all good things for her and I could see how much she was struggling. And I witnessed this and it's, it's just like, um, one of the things that I, you know, really hope in the process of this kind of storytelling where you've got the size of a plus size heroine, like Pearl, um, is that we sort of destigmatize this kind of situation. I mean, we, it's not uncommon at all in fiction, right, where we hear about alcoholism or drug addiction or even sex addiction or bulimia or anorexia, which is sort of the converse of this. But we don't often hear in storytelling about people whose addiction is food and um, how people use it to comfort all that um, – all that's hurting them on the inside. 
And when they're stuffing their emotions, they're simultaneously sometimes stuffing their faces. And, um, and so I really wanted to do something that was um, all about the courage it takes. Cause I will say one of the hardest things to overcome is probably a food addiction because we can't stop eating. Right. Like, you know, unlike alcohol where you go cold Turkey and you just say it's off limits to me forever. I mean, the food stuff is really hard. You got to you got to eat. <laughs> yeah, we have to have our nourishment. So you have to yeah. relearn this sort of delicate balance, and um, it's 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 very big when when people make the choice to to do that. Wow. You're listening to Writers' Voices with Monica and Caroline, and our guest today is Wendy Willis Baldwin, author of The Sisters We Were. Wendy, would you like to to read a little bit from the book to get a, give a feel for the story? I'd be happy to. Um, yeah. So I'm going to read a portion of the story. It's a little bit later in the in the narrative, and this is where Pearl and Ruby um, are. They, they've been forced together to come under one roof through a variety of for a variety of reasons, and. Um, Ruby is essentially helping Pearl heal, and it turns out Pearl's helping Ruby heal. And in the end, there's been some stuff that happens that gives both of them pause for reflection. And and this is just a really sort of poignant um, nugget of dialogue that I thought I would share because it gives a flavor for sort of the insights that Pearl gains along the way, and Ruby as well. They've agreed to make no sudden moves. Until Pearl has lost her weight and until Ruby's business is off and running, For the time being, they've agreed to cohabitate. With this much space in what is still one of the most coveted neighborhoods in Austin, it just makes sense to stay put, at least for now. And although neither one of them has admitted it to the other, they both take more comfort than they expected in the time they've been sharing living together under one roof. I sold my house at 10% above asking, remember, Ruby says? I'm not worried about replacing a mattress, Pearl. It's kind of fun shutting all these knickknacks and sprucing things up, you know? Feels like we're on our own episode of Fixer Upper, and we're about to reconfigure this whole space. Ruby lies there, looking up at the ceiling, taking note of the way the white paint above has yellowed over the years. Yep, this whole place could stand some rehab, Ruby says. Don't you think it would be best to fix it up and sell it? I mean, with the real estate in this area, we could get ten times what Mom and Dad paid for it. I'm just saying, with everything that happened here, don't you want a fresh start, Pearl? You could take the cash, maybe buy something brand new. Or not, Pearl says. What's or not? I mean, why not, Ruby asks, propping herself up on her elbow. I mean, if I work hard, I could just try to keep putting my own touches on it and give it some new life. Right, but isn't the whole point of you losing weight about putting the old Pearl behind you and starting over? The point of me losing weight is so I can keep living. It was so I didn't end up stuck in that bed, unable to help myself. Whether I live in the same old house or a new one has nothing to do with my weight. I can be happy anywhere as long as I'm comfortable in my own skin. Ruby mulls this over, then asks Pearl something she's never asked before. So are you? Am I what? Comfortable in your own skin? Pearl glances toward the mirror and studies her reflection. She wiggles her toes, recalling a time when she couldn't even see them. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I finally feel good about who I am and how I look. She bends over to inspect her feet up close because, well, she can. What are you doing down there, Ruby asks, cocking her head. I'm just hanging out, staring at my ankles. Is that weird? (laughs) Um, Mildly, Ruby says, trying to understand. Everything okay? 
completely. I just never noticed how good I look from the knee down. <laughs> yep. I have to say, I'm definitely comfortable in my own skin. And check out my ankles, Ruby. They're fire, right? <laughs> anyway, you know, for Pearl, you know, she's had this, Pearl Crenshaw is this uh, protagonist who has an obsession with the show Fixer Upper with Joanna and Chip Gaines. And um, I love that as a metaphor for her because it was one of those moments that was sort of an epiphany she has early on in the narrative where she's like, I'm a Fixer Upper. I can do that. I want to see the new and improved me. And for Pearl, as she goes along in this process of shedding everything that was weighing her down, it's like her whole body is new real estate, you know? I mean, she's discovering. And, and I, I will tell you guys, I remember so vividly one of my favorite memories of my own sister when she lost her weight. My mom and my sister and I went shopping for a few new things for her because she had no clothes that fit anymore, right? Mm-hmm. And um, we were in the dressing room. And my sister kept pointing at her um, collarbone, and she didn't know what it was. She was like, oh, my God, what is this? What is this bone protruding from my chest? What is that? And <laughs> that's her clavicle. And she's like, oh, my God, I love my clavicle. I love my clavicle. <laughs> and it's just funny stuff like that where, you know, for someone who's undergone, I mean, and I think anybody, even those of us who uh, who can relate to a 10-pound weight loss or something, you see these changes in yourself, and you're like, wow. Um but for someone who was 531 pounds and loses 349 of that, it's all different. Oh, man. It's hard to even imagine. Yeah. yeah. It's so hard to imagine that I will tell you. Okay. So, you know, you mentioned my podcast at the beginning of the show. My sister and I in real life started this podcast called Life After Fat Pants Podcast. And the genesis of that was the title, um, Fat Pants. She had – she kept these blue jeans – um, she wore at her heaviest and, um, they were sort of like a trophy for her. I mean, she kind of, she got rid of all the other stuff that, you know, she no longer needed in the way of clothing, but, um, these jeans meant something to her. And there was an article that I was asked to write many years ago, I guess a decade now, um, for a magazine and the picture, my sister had the idea, okay, what if we stand in each leg of those jeans? And we did. Oh. And there, this picture, and it's actually on, on our Life After Fat Pants podcast website. You can see the picture of us standing in it. And it was what turned into the logo for the podcast and everything because it's so remarkable to think that she occupied all of that at one point and now we can each stand in one leg. It was really something. Wow. And for oh, her, boy, a big badge of honor. So tell me yeah. a little bit more about the podcast. Is it um, something you do on a regular basis? And what kind of, what's the topics? So Life After Brad Pam's podcast is all about true stories of transformation. And um, we, the genesis of it was, you know, when I was going out on submission with this manuscript, um, which was under a different title at the time. The original title actually for this manuscript was called The Weight of It All. And I don't want to confuse anybody because it is the sisters we were, but um, the publisher decided to change the title. Um, But early on, before I even had agent representation for this book, um, I was sending out query letters to agents. And early on, I got these sort of very hurtful um, replies saying things like, uh, you know, people will find a 531-pound protagonist to be distasteful. It's a subject that, you know, nobody wants to read about. I mean, like, there was all this. And when I would go back to my sister and tell her this, it was 
extremely like it hurt our feelings. I mean, just very candidly, it hurt our feelings and we didn't want to be shushed. And so it's like, what can we do about this? We have power. We have our own voice. She has her own voice. She has her own story to tell. And my sister has now worked for over a decade as a bariatric coach, walking people through these things, this oh, exact wow. experience that, that Pearl mm-hmm. Crenshaw goes through. So this is what Tiff does for a living. And she speaks about it everywhere. And um, anyway, the point being, we decided to launch this podcast about transformation. And I've gone through my own kind of transformation. She's gone through hers. But we interview people who've done all kinds of transformations, whether it's um, a career change, whether it's Swedish death cleaning that you do to, you know, (laughs) kind of transform your living space, or maybe it's a new job. Or we interviewed an author who was 90 years old, who um, at 90, can you imagine, at 90 years old, she wrote a book. Oh, wow. And, And it's such an inspiration. So it's just like these, you know, divorce, death. Uh, you know, moving. Oh my gosh, I moved to New England and um, I was in Virginia and, and now my husband and I are living in the North Pole is what I tell him. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, transformation. Transformations are real. And um, how do we go through them gracefully? How do we um, how do we learn from these changing seasons of our lives? That kind of stuff interests me. How do you find your guests? Oh my gosh, look left to right. I mean, you know, there's so many, I mean, basically all of us have stories of transformation. I don't know anyone who doesn't. Um, And so we really just um, look around and it's people we know, uh, people who know of us and people our friends know. So yeah, cool. Cool. You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline, and our guest today is Wendy Willis-Baldwin, author of The Sisters We Were. So, Caroline, do you have some questions? Well, I was just wondering, um, The both sisters had hidden truths that contributed to how they chose to live their lives apart. I mean, one, you know, Ruby took off and made a life for herself and so forth, and, uh, and Pearl, of course, stayed in the house and so forth. And uh, that was... Um, it was interesting. I thought it was very interesting that the two, because the way they came together later in the book was just, I mean, it was, it was just insp- very inspiring. It really was. Mm, I think that, I'm glad. I think they had been so far apart, you know, but they had that, they had that, those, that, that main truth that they had both been, both been, um, you know, molested. And so that was what kept them, that's what brought them back together. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things is, is that it's in our vulnerability where we begin to see growth. Right. And and it's not until Ruby and Pearl are thrust back under one roof, surrounded by memories of their past um, and where they really are forced to reckon with their vulnerability. And and that's where you start to see. um, I mean, I use the weight as sort of a metaphor, but like. When the weight comes off slowly, 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 and actually very quickly, if you consider how quick the timeline is for the book, but um, you start to see Pearl sharing, and she's unveiling herself in a very slow way to her most trusted confidant, which who's Ruby, and um, in that, all throughout that revealing, um, Ruby is realizing, wow, there was so much I didn't fully understand. And 
you know, I think that when somebody asked me, you know, what's, what's the thing that you want people to take away after reading this book? And I would hope that it's a level of empathy because I think so often, um, certainly people who, um, are, are struggling with, um, really severe obesity or any kind of obesity, but certainly severe obesity. And, um, I know in my family, it's a thing. Um, there are folks who are misunderstood, um, and they have, um, maybe it's a lot of trauma that has not been reckoned with. And, 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 you know, that's another thing is that to your point, Caroline, it's like some of our wounds are more visible than others. And mm-hmm. even though in this book, Ruby's pain is not necessarily as outwardly visible because she sort of seems semi-perfect at first, um, or at least through Pearl's eyes, it's like, oh, Ruby's, you know, little Miss Perfect, little Miss Size 4, whatever. And yet Ruby is just as toxic. You know, she's just as unhealthy in terms of her um, her mindset and her heart posture and all of that. And so um, it, it takes her a minute to kind of um, get out of her own way <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and go, okay, here, I've got stuff too. I can't just be pointing my finger at my sister. Now, the fact if you see someone's over that's overweight, you can't necessarily assume that they are dealing with trauma, can you? A hundred percent. No, not at all. No. I mean, there's so many reasons for it, and, and certainly, um, food addiction is not a reason that people are overweight in every instance either. Um, and I, I, I really point that out in the beginning of the book because it's the, the story is not about not an indictment on obesity or even anything like that. It's really, it was a story told um, that I conjured up based on the inspirational um, massive weight loss. I watched my sister um, experience at a, at an older age in life. Quite frankly, she was 40. Pearl is younger in this story. Um, But it's just truly remarkable what happens to people when they've lived their life in one way and then suddenly they step out in a whole completely new look and body to where nobody even recognizes them. I mean, it's that level of transformation. I mean, if you can imagine suddenly you walk into a room and, and nobody recognizes you, you know. Wow. Is it, you know, I know that the, the bariatric surgery makes the stomach smaller. And um, so in a, in a way, the patients are unable to eat more early on, but then of mm-hmm. course, gradually the, the stomach can stretch again. How hard is mm-hmm. it to maintain that smaller portion size yeah, for well, life? <laughs> That's... I think it's a, a major thing. And if there's another thing I would love for this story to reveal to folks is, is if you had any misgivings or misconceptions about the ease with which people walk through bariatric surgery, you're mistaken because that's a that's a really hard choice for people to make, and it's um, it's a life changing permanent one, and um, I'm, I, I I would love to destigmatize that whole thing. It's it may not be for everyone for sure. Um, there are certainly uh, more than uh, uh, there's more than one way to arrive at a healthier um, uh, weight um, in life, and this was the path that my sister took. It's also the path that Pearl Crenshaw took. But for my sister, going on ten years now, I mean. The buildup, the the story shows you exactly what someone who's walking through this choice has to go through, including 
the patient intake forms, the very thoughtful probing questions, yeah. The, yeah, the, right. the counseling that you have to go through that they demand, the uh, you know commitments you have to sign, the weight loss. In fact, my sister, when she had hers in Pearl too, it was too big for gastric bypass. So without getting too deep in the medical weeds on this, my sister actually had to demonstrate that she could lose 50 pounds before she was even able to be a candidate for the sleeve procedure. And so, you know, losing 50 pounds is not a cakewalk, right? It's, oh, wow. it's, it's tough. Yeah. And, and so this takes a level of commitment that I think the average person doesn't understand. And um, certainly the average uh, slender person um, doesn't understand. And I put myself in that category because I I was just slack jawed at, at watching my own sister go through this whole process and and realizing that this was a lifelong commitment. I mean, she has to eat pretty much bird like portions uh, for the rest of her life. And um, you know what? It was a compromise she was willing to make because it was only through that commitment that she's been able to enjoy things like snorkeling and climbing up a flight of stairs and going kayaking or hiking and you know, doing all of these things, traveling on an airplane. I mean, it's, it's so many things that my sister had never been able to do. And I wanted to show people through the storytelling how powerful it is for a character who's been so limited to suddenly break out of that prison and be able to just, you know, experience life in a, in a, you know, complete, a more complete way. One of the things that kind of an important thing that I learned from this was the fact that when the stomach is made smaller like that, it actually, there's like some chemicals or something that the stomach releases that... Oh, yeah, the ghrelin. Yeah, can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about that? Oh, gosh, I hope. <laughs> My husband's a doctor, <laughs> I'm not. Um, but um, the ghrelin is a hormone, and, and basically... From what I recall of the explanation, and I, I, I hope I'm not getting this wrong, but basically the hunger hormone is a, is adjusted after someone goes through this procedure, and um, you really aren't feeling um, that level of hunger that you used to feel. And in fact, many of these bariatric patients, not only do they not feel the hunger that they used to feel, but they actually don't like things that they used to like. Like for my sister in real life um a funny thing she used to like eggs and after her surgery oh my i mean it's taken her years to be able to just even look at an egg and, and now <laughs> oh i mean an eggs are a great source of protein you know like it's a good and it's a great on the go kind of thing for her to eat um but it's it's taken her 10 years to even you know warm up to the idea of eating an egg so um and that's just one example. I mean, there are so many, but yeah, so it's kind of a blessing, I guess I would say for people who are going through that procedure because um, it's not, it's like the body's way of uh, helping you not feel tortured. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. you're not, um, yeah, you're not completely, at least this is true for her experience. And I know um, she's counseled so many folks um, like her and, and it's a lot of similar responses. So now, as you were writing this, were you concerned at all about people thinking that you really, that Pearl really was Tiffany and Ruby really was you and not, you know, and, and like you're, you're divulging a lot of kind of intimate personal 
information. Mm-hmm. So how did you yeah. how did you deal with that? Well, um, I mean, the beauty of fiction is that it kind of gives you um, a lot of leeway. I mean, I, I love that about fiction. I can I can just kind of get in there and deal with a lot of stuff without um, having to worry about the facts too much. I'm getting <laughs> mired down in the facts, and and um, and there's a lot of liberty in that, and and it made the process um, really. I don't know. It made it very approachable for me um, as a way for me as a writer to kind of work through um, a lot of different things. And maybe even because I'd fictionalized sort of the version of myself in this in Ruby, I could I could caricature her in a way um, that, you know, it's hard to look at ourselves and, and go, gosh, I was this way. I was this way. But when I'm looking at her as a fictional character it's much easier for me to make her exceptionally mean and and aggressive and like all of these things I mean she can she can be that foil in full force without and and to and to a large degree I think that makes for really um, a more impactful story I mean not that you know um, writers write what we know Um, and um, I always say truth is stranger than fiction and there are there is one anecdote in the in the novel that actually did happen, and the truth was stranger than fiction. But um, um, my publisher chose to make it um, a little more um, sedate. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. Now yeah, I'm really um, curious. <laughs> what, what? Yeah, well, there, there's a scene, and um, and and we, I, I can talk about all this because my sister and I have this podcast, and she openly discusses all of these things. In fact, there's an episode of our podcast called Sexual Chocolate, and Sexual chocolate is the name of a boat. And many years ago, um, much like a scene in this novel, my sister, she had not yet gotten to be 531 pounds, but she was pretty, pretty um, heavy. And she had capsized on a wave runner and needed a rescue in a lake in Texas. And this was a lake outside of Dallas. And um, uh, Dennis Rodman, who plays for the Ma- <laughs> who played for the Mavericks at the time, he had the boat sexual chocolate. Okay, and my sister is just mortified, and she's underwater, waterlogged, you know, hair, and wearing a t-shirt and shorts, and not feeling or looking her best in any way, but mostly scared for her life. And Dennis Rodman, with one big tug, pulled her onto his boat and and saved her life and was a perfect gentleman about the whole thing and took her back to the boat where she was. Anyway, I mean, the whole thing is when you you hear my sister tell the story, it's absolutely uh, darkly hysterical. And it it makes you kind of love Dennis Rodman. Um, But um, anyway, when I wrote that, they were like, no, 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 it can't be Rodman. We need to change that. So um, there is a similar scene that you see Pearl Crenshaw go through where it's this awareness. And it was for my sister, quite frankly, it was like she got to this point where she'd had this experience where she thought, oh, my gosh, I can't save myself. Even if I tried, even if I want to, I can't. Like I, I, I have allowed myself to get to the point where I can no longer pull myself and hoist myself up out of water. Mm. And it was scary at her young age. I mean, she was 30 years old at the time. Um, and that's, um, just one of those physical moments where you're forced to reckon with your own bodily limitations and, um, what are you learning from it? You know? Yeah. 
You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline, and our guest today is Wendy Willis-Baldwin, author of The Sisters We Were. Um, Wendy, would you like to read a little bit more from the book? Absolutely. Let's see. All right. This little passage, um, also toward the end, I love because... um, Pearl Crenshaw has gone through a lot in the way of therapy, and um, she's also realized a dramatic weight loss, and she's just come to terms with things in her life and really gotten in touch with her own sense of self-worth. So I love what she says here. She says she's talking to a group, her, her support group. So what I want to talk about isn't my weight or your weight or some number on the scale, but rather the weight of the burdens we carry and our often unhealthy coping strategies. It's taken me a long time to connect what eating, what was eating at me to what I was eating. I know most of you can relate to this. The pounds I put on over the course of my life were in direct proportion to the personal problems I was too afraid to face. At 531 pounds, it was plain to see that I simply didn't value myself enough, didn't love myself the way I should. But one of the traps of obesity is that if we don't prevent it, It can become a kind of self-perpetuating maze, and once we enter, it can be very difficult to find our way back out again. When I was 531 pounds, I just couldn't visualize another version of myself, but I knew I was at that tipping point. I knew I was so big that if I got much bigger, I probably wouldn't live much longer. I was a breath away from needing one of those tripod canes or a scooter to even make it from the parking lot to my desk at work, and I just didn't want to tip the scales against my favor by adding one more pound. Some piece of me was desperate to get out from under the weight of it all so that I would no longer be defined by the sum total of all the pain and pounds I'd collected over the years. And you know people who know nothing about obesity, excuse me, and you know people who know nothing about obesity or bariatric surgery think a gastric bypass or a sleeve is like a one and done or some easy way out, but it's not. We all know this is something we've committed to for a life and that that there's damn sure nothing easy about it either. It's funny how life works out, right? I mean, you're looking at a girl who's never even flown on a plane because if I even tried, I would have been required to pay for two seats instead of one. Two years ago, the idea of me flying anywhere seemed about as likely as me being on the cover of the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition, and yet here I am. There are 349 pounds fewer of me now, and in a few more weeks, I'm going to be taking my maiden voyage on Southwest Airlines to speak about my dramatic weight loss, which happens to be a subject that up until my surgery – didn't look like I knew much about. And my goals for the trip are threefold. First, I want to speak with passion and conviction about the many ways in which child abuse and trauma are manifested in the form of morbid obesity. Second, I hope to be able to serve as a walking, talking example of the dramatic positive benefits of bariatric surgery and why more employers should be covering the cost to treat this disease of obesity. And last, but definitely not least, I want to pee in the bathroom on the plane. <laughs> and if you read that book, you you know what Pearl goes through. It's, it's like, it's hilarious. Like most of us want to avoid the bathroom on the plane, right? Mm-hmm. At all costs. It's like, no, don't, don't, hold it, hold it. But like for Pearl, it's this triumph. So she's like, yes, I can totally fit in that tiny space. And yes, I can go to the bathroom. I'm going to celebrate that. Oh, well, it is it is pretty tiny, that's for sure. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. Now, the book is set in Austin, which I think that's where you grew up. Is that true? Yes, absolutely. And their house and again, it's, is in Tarrytown. Right, what you know. Yeah. Yes. And um, 
Now, I don't know if anyone has told you this yet, but the jack-in-the-box in the corner of Lamar and, and Barton Springs Road is not there anymore. Girl, <laughs> I know it. Are you kidding? That was my favorite place. My, my friends and I in high school, the jack, we used to call it Jack in the Crack, um, and we would go to the jack-in-the-box late at night. It was sort of our after-party spot for those, oh, my God, those awful tacos that were, why were they so good? I don't know. <laughs> Anyway, um, it's now a, yeah, it's I'm now a Starbucks. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, nice to know you got your Austin geography down there. Well, I have a condo on Barton Springs Road, uh, oh, like okay. halfway okay. between Lamar and Zilker Park. So that is my neighborhood. Oh, ideal. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. When are you going to invite me over? Come on. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> sure. I'm not, I'm only there about so a third of the time. You get to go walking time. in the park. Yeah, yeah. I or down by the. I usually go on the Lady Bird, uh, Lady Bird Trail. You know the. Yeah, yeah, see, for uh, the old school Austin people, that was called Town Lake. Right, um, right. And then, it, and then it was turned into Lady Bird Lake, yeah. and, which I love. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's funny. You can always tell how long someone lived in Austin <laughs> by what the, how they refer to that lake. I, well, everything there has two names. You know, it's like exactly. You give, try and give someone directions. In fact, my my um, both my kids graduated from UT in Austin, and um, oh okay. yeah, and my son still lives in the area. And when he was getting married. Um, he had forgotten his shoes at his apartment and we sent my then boyfriend at the time and a family friend to, to retrieve his shoes. He was, the wedding was out someplace on Lake Travis and we gave him directions and we said, I don't know, we either gave him as highway one or we gave it as Mopac, but that's whatever we right, said, right. the sign was something else. And this was right. pre GPS. So they got lost. So Mopac is Highway One, and uh, Research Boulevard. Yeah, Ben yeah. White is seventy-one. <laughs> Research Boulevard is one eighty-three. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and you got Capital of Texas Highway, which is three sixty. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. yes, exactly. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I hadn't really thought of that, but yeah. you're right. everything does have two names. Yes, and, and and there's a First Avenue on. Or First Street and a First Avenue, one on the north side, one on the south <laughs> side of the river. And it's very confusing. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a colorful city. And that's what I'm sure you living there, that's probably what you love about it so much is it's just full of all kinds of um, amazing people and energy. And I, it's a great place. It was a great place to grow up. Yeah, I bet. I bet. And so when's the last time you've been there? Uh, last weekend. Oh! <laughs> I'm headed back on Monday for this book launch. We're launching the book on Tuesday, the 17th, um, from the Barnes and Noble at the Arboretum, actually. Oh, and, I've been um, there. So, yeah, so I'm going to kind of do a little Texas tour, and it seems fitting since that's where the book takes place. But I actually had um, had a I had to go down last weekend for um, a, a memorial service for my friend's father, and um, it was a sad reason to go, but a great opportunity to, you know, re be reunited with friends from high school and um, oh. have a little girl time. It was lovely. That's, and I bet they're really excited for you with this book launch. They are. You know, it, it's been fun. Like, I, I was a Westlake High School class of 87 girl, and um, it, it's been really neat to see how many even – Friends from the past are like, hey, cool, this is awesome. Yeah. So, um, now, are you, yeah, it'll be fun to see everyone. Are you going to have any events at Book People? I'm going by Book People in the morning to do, um, like, sign some of the inventory. And then my 
my event is at Barnes and Noble that night, and then I'm going to go up the road to Waco because you know Pearl yeah. has a fascination with Fixer Upper. Yep. And part of the story takes the girls up to Waco, close to the silos, specifically the cupcake shop. Yeah. And um, <laughs> so I'm going to go hit Fabled Bookstore, which is a beautiful little independent bookstore in Waco. And I'm doing an event there. And then from there, I'm going up to Virginia and um, hitting some places. And then I'm back to New England. And then I think I'm going to take a breath and just, uh, yeah, um, <laughs> hope that hope hope that this book does well. Hope, hopefully um, a lot of people will discover it. So, Wendy, tell us about how you were able to find a publisher. How did how you know you um, talked about yeah. the rejections, but you didn't tell us about the success. So um, my publisher story is kind of interesting, and since this is a podcast that targets writers specifically, it's it's one I'll share here. Um, I I wrote the first manuscript of this, um, and I sent it out, and I had a, a, some feedback that was like, "Wow, this is really um, depressing," and like, oh. <laughs> it's a little. And it was very dark at the time. It didn't have near the humor and the structure and all of that. And I also made the mistake of writing it in um, second person or something crazy like that. Mm. It was like, okay. Um, so I, I I had the the wits about me to hire an editor. And not only did I hire a very highly skilled editor by the name of Emily Heckman, she's amazing, and she turned into one of my dearest friends, um, but I also had the good sense to do what she told me to do um, and not let my ego take over. Like, basically, I'm not kidding you. She read my manuscript, and she sent it back a month later and said, hey, you you need to rewrite this whole book. Oh, <laughs> and, oh, And that's ouch. like a lot for, for writers to swallow, right? That's like, yeah. wait, what? Yeah. Like, no, you know, I can't do that. There's no way. And I just decided, you know what? Um I I had scraped together enough money to pay her and listen to her advice of, you know, okay, here's what would make this germ of an idea really soar into a powerful story, you know, and she kind of was um, giving me a lot of suggestions about it. And so I just decided, okay, I'm going to do that. And I dedicated um, the better part of a year to rewriting it. And um, at first, when I went out for some of the agent representation on it, um, I did get those those sort of snarky remarks that I mentioned, but, um, in very short time, I mean, I'm talking over the course of a couple of weeks, I, um, had a lot of interest, um, and like multiple offers of representation from agents. And so that told me something I had not yet witnessed before in my writing. And that was, Hey, maybe I'm onto something. Maybe this is good. You know? Um, so I ended up going with uh, Marley Russoff, um, who is amazing and wonderful and a uh, fun fact, sad fact, but part of the reason that the story resonated so much with her is that she lost um, a family member due to complications related to obesity. And so this story felt really powerful to her. It hit house close mm-hmm. to home. And and she's like, this needs to be told. We need to talk more about this. And I want to represent you. So I was thrilled. And then she proceeded to um, sell this very quickly. Um, so um, I couldn't be more pleased and more grateful, um, but it was a long time coming for sure. And who is your publisher? Sourcebooks Landmark. And what's their like claim to fame? What are they known for? Um, lots of things. They are, uh, I mean, 
Um, Hmm. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I think they're like the number seven um, largest publisher in the world. Um, so they do a wide variety of, of books. Oh, yeah. 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 Like lots of lots of uh, fiction, lots of speculative fiction. Um, and I will say what I've really appreciated um, about them is, is sort of this, uh, the intensity of the handholding process, uh, especially for a debut author. Um you know, they're very interested in um, independent women. Oh, they are an independent women-owned publisher. That's one thing oh, that I really love great, about them. Great. So girl power, girl power. <laughs> um, love that. And then, um, you know, I, I just like the way that they have this um, big scientific approach to digital marketing for their books. And um, I, they've walked me through this process completely, and and there there have been some really interesting nuances, some of which are kind of controversial, I would say, especially for people in the writing community. Like this book went through multiple sensitivity reads, um, which I think is a new thing in publishing. And uh, some writers are like, "Gee, I don't want to be told what I can and can't write," you know. Um, and I have to say, very honestly, like when I went through through the first round of sensitivity reads with this and I got back a report and they were like, Oh, you might think about this and this and this and this. It was like, Whoa, Oh my gosh. I mean, it was just so, so much. And, and yet I will say that once I took a breath and stepped aside, I just decided to approach each of those as if it was a new opportunity to edit, you know, a new opportunity to make the story better for more people. And so once I took that attitude, um, I, I tweaked maybe a few little things, um, you know, really considered what was being said and then and then just decided I'm going to get comfortable with the story at this level. Mm -hmm. And but I, I'm grateful for each and every part of the process, because ultimately um, that's what brought it to where it is today. Wendy, do you have another little section that you'd like to read for us before we run out of time? OK, this is a part of the story where um, Pearl is sort of discovering her fascination with fixer-upper. After she washes her hands, Pearl throws her long hair over one shoulder and subconsciously twists it into a side braid, like the one favored by her fixer-upper fantasy icon. Impulsively, and perhaps partly fueled by the remodeling underway on TV, she tugs at an annoying piece of wallpaper, a piece that's been sticking out for way too long. With one swift yank, Pearl peels off the strip that reaches all the way to the ceiling leaving a torn, glued edge crudely exposed. You guys ready to see your fixer-upper? She hears the familiar question and moves toward the screen, just in time to see Chip and Joanna Gaines pull back both sides of the giant barricade, the one that once concealed the diamond in the rough home, the before disaster, which they've lovingly and efficiently renovated in record time. It's this, the big reveal she lives for, the part where all the wishes come true and everyone is hugging and crying tears of joy at the miraculous transformation. It's so gratifying to watch even the most hideous of shitholes, the most rundown, dumpiest of houses, evolve into something beautiful. And this is when it really hits her. Just like the old ranch-style house that now looks like a mid-century dream come true, Pearl is also a fixer-upper. With this bariatric surgery, she could be just like that big, sprawling house on TV, the one that's making this particular episode's homeowners, two professors from Baylor, burst out crying. 
As JoJo guides them through their fancy new kitchen, complete with farm sink and floating shelves, Pearl sees her reflection on the screen, notices the outline of the tinted T-shirt stretched to maximum capacity, and the sight of her own form superimposed on that of Joanna Gaines brings tears of joy of another kind. Just like the couple on TV, Pearl yearns for an improved, updated, reimagined version of her life. Let the demo begin, she thinks. Thank you, Wendy. That was Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Great. And I really do appreciate you guys having me. We're, we're thrilled to have you. Mom, do you have any more questions before we wrap up? Well, no, but I do. I would like to real quickly tell about the thing with those the people that uh, publish the um, chicken soup for this whole thing mm-hmm. chicken soup for this chicken soup for that they couldn't find a publisher remember yeah they could not find a publisher and now it's chicken soup for everything but the kitchen sink <laughs> i mean isn't that right it's true it took isn't that amazing? it took yeah. i think over a hundred submissions before they found the, yeah. and it was just a small <laughs> publisher that they basically the pub they made that publisher <laughs> that was yeah, yeah. Think, yeah. yeah. and it's, you know I so, one thing I was wondering you know I knew that you'd had a little bit of um, trouble placing it originally because of the protagonist size and because people feel a little uh-huh. hesitant about wanting to identify with someone who mm-hmm. is that size do do you think it's but I think the fact that she loses so much weight is a big plus obviously but do you think it would be possible to write a story with a severely obese protagonist who didn't lose weight? Yeah, yeah. I think it would be. I think it, I think it's um I think it's very interesting. In fact, there are, I think there's a movie out the way yeah, right now yeah. about very topic. Yeah. Um you know and I have not yet seen the film, but um and and certainly in reading um novels in the past she's come undone by Wally Lamb comes to mind years mm. ago. I love that story. It, it still stays with me. Um you know, what's eating Gilbert Grape and, and you know, all that. Um, I think that certainly um, it, it could be a story and, and certainly one that would be very interesting. Um, it's, it doesn't happen to be the story I wrote. Right, one, right. But, <laughs> but one of the things that is important to, to know in this story is that, and, and we see this with Pearl, it's not about that she she loses the weight. This is not a story that's, yes, the weight is important, but it's about her realizing she's worth it. And it's about the power that comes from knowing we're all just one decision away from a totally different life. And that is the real message is like, hey, whatever our thing is, whatever our buried it is, um, whatever our vice, I mean, we, we can make one choice right now and, and our life can be tra- transformed. And that's a story that, anyone can relate to and um if more people could identify i mean part of the beautiful thing about storytelling in general is that it illuminates the plight of of humanity right different circumstances we're illuminating the the human experience from different points of view and so yeah a point of view where it's a, a morbidly obese character and who who isn't ever able to get out of that that's that's a story. Yeah, um, yeah. But I, I found it personally more interesting for me um, to write about a story where we see a transformation. And what are you working on now? Um, I'm working on retooling um, a manuscript I've already written, 
and it's the story of a of a young Texas girl who um, is on she her father has killed himself and she's on the hunt to uh, follow the instructions the cryptic instructions he's left in his suicide note. Oh and, wow! And um, it takes her on a journey of self discovery and um, yeah, so that's something I've been working on. I've written it once. Um, and now it looks like I'm probably going to write it again. <laughs> well, that <laughs> seems to I work for you. Keep scraping away at it, it until you it get it the way It definitely worked for you. Well, we're about out of time. Caroline, do you have some closing words for us? Uh, yes, I do. In the uh, group that she went to, you know, was poor group, yeah, they all had some things to say. And one of them was good. Dreams are the seeds of change. Nothing grows without a seed. And nothing ever changes without a dream. That's right. Well, thank you, Wendy, for being with us today. Oh, thank you so much. I'm grateful for the time, and um, I wish you both the best. And see you all next week on Writer's Voices. Thanks so much. Bye, everybody.